This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Transcend Human Podcast, another Monday morning here in Southern California. Actually, no, it is almost three o'clock on Monday. So I typically try to record these things in advance, uh, but sometimes I don't. And sometimes I'm literally recording early Monday morning uh, in order to get it out by eight o'clock when I typically like to publish the, uh, the episodes. Uh, this morning, that was the plan. Um, but in California, we have this thing called the Santa Ana winds. And I know those of you who don't live in California are like, oh, you poor little Southern California people dealing with your wind. Well, you're right. I, I get it. We're a little soft. We, you know, have some weird ideas about what warmth is and what it is to be cold. But the Santa Ana winds are no joke. Um, I, I would love to have you come spend the night in my house when the winds are kicked in full force um, and let you try to sleep because we had Santa Ana winds all night and, you know, to the point where the house is kind of, the windows are shaking and different vents in the house are getting sucked in and sucked out. And, you know, it's just a, a constant clatter uh, throughout the night. So I woke up this morning same deal. Uh, wind's still blowing. And I'm like, there's no way. There's no way I'm going to get an episode recorded and then uh, and then get it out in time. Um, so here we are, three o'clock, uh, trying to get this pumped out so that we are still launching on Monday as usual. So apologies to those of you who are 8 a.m. on the dot listeners. If that's you, apologies. It was not there, um, but it will be very soon. So here we go. Um, I wanted to address something interesting, I guess, about the episode so far this season. So we aren't in a series per se, but what I'm finding is that my brain is operating in a specific direction, right? And the episodes are, are almost appearing to be connected in some way. Uh, last week, the episode was called Transcending the Good Old Days. And we, we took a walk down memory lane, did some nostalgic looks back at our past, but then we quickly transitioned the conversation to the danger that comes if we get stuck there, right? If we lose focus on today, uh, when we start to idolize the past and we become myopic and we become somewhat selfish and demanding, uh, our behavior fits perfectly into the growing polarization that we see in our country. And on some level, we can actually become radicalized as we become more and more polarized with those around us. Today, we take it one step further. Um, our episode today is called Transcending Control. And in this new normal, if you will, of political and ideological polarization, there's often a grab for power, right? When, it, when a person feels a loss of control, uh, you work even harder to control the things around you. Um, last week, we talked about when you, when you really get hyper-focused on the good old days, 
what you're really focused on is change. And change means loss. You lost something that you can look back on and appreciate or idolize in some way and really want to get back. And when we're stuck in that mode of trying to get the past back and you're in that loss of control, it's often when people look for other people who agree with them, right? Um, And a person who agrees with you but also has more power kind of stands out in the crowd. And you realize that, hey, by combining our power or by joining a movement that seems to have a lot of power in that direction, you start to feel less out of control. And then next week, we're going to dive into a a topic called transcending brainwashing, which is really just a follow-up on the conversation that we have today. So today we're going to dive into some information about cults and cult-like behavior. Um, And we're going to ask things like, but how did we get there? How were we brainwashed into believing these things, right? And why did it take us so long to see the light? Like I said, I didn't clump all three of these episodes into a series, but I can definitely see the connection between them. So with that said, uh, let's dive into our minute of transparency uh, for this week. I'm going to call this one, Where's My Brain At? So there must be something going on inside of me, right? If the first three episodes of season four are the episodes that I came up with, the episodes and the topics that popped into my head at the beginning of this year. So what happened over the Christmas holidays, right? I can hear you asking that already. Was there some big incident or catastrophe that got me thinking about authoritarian control, cults, brainwashing? No, not that I can think of. So then what is it, right? Why is my brain stuck in this space? And when I look back into last season, I actually found a clue or two. So this isn't completely new for me. In fact, in November... Uh, I did an episode called Transcending the Decades, and I talked about what my life looked like in the 70s, 80s, 90s, etc. Sounds a lot like Transcending the Good Old Days, right? Then I found Transcending the Bubble uh, back in October of last year, and it was really a discussion on clicks and, and breaking out of them. But interestingly enough, our discussion today is on cults, and there's nothing more clicky <laughs> than a cult, right? A little more rigidity, obviously, in a cult, but um, a cult is basically a clique of people who are all focused on the same thing. And then we did a series on deconstruction, a series where I kind of struggled through my own awakening from parental and religious brainwashing that I went through in my life. And interestingly enough, next week's episode is on brainwashing. So there you have it. Apparently, these aren't new topics for a new season. These are just more of the same, more of where my brain has been at in the past and apparently what I've been focused on a lot here recently. Now, when I look back, the only things that I can point to that may have contributed to this newfound mental state are things like my wife and I being let go from the church we were working at back in 18, 19, somewhere in there. Um, Then we had the COVID-19 pandemic, all of the social unrest that went on in our country at that time. Then you had the political polarization that started to happen. You witnessed this growing deconstruction movement within the Christian church and just, I guess, in general, spirituality in general. Um, There's the corruption and the abuses that are being unmasked in more and more churches, Um, the rise of Christian nationalism. 
And then there's the rise and the popularity of conspiracy theories that are being promoted on social media. So you throw all of this stuff up in the air, and when it comes down, for me at least, it just lands in this giant abstract heap of chaos, right? There's so much there that I can't even make sense of it all. And when you're a person like me who lives in their head a lot of the time, uh, it can become maddening. You want to make sense of it all. You want to see patterns. You want to be able to find the cause and effect uh, relationships, right? You want to be able to find the truth because truth is important. Truth is comforting. It's settling and it should decrease polarization. But when you can't do this, when the chaos is just there all the time, this is where my mind tends to go. Now, other people seem to be fine, right? They often laugh at me for being so dramatic. They say things like, dude, you just have to ignore it right? You just, you need to stop watching the news. You need to spend less time on social media. You need to focus more on the here and now, not what's going on in politics. And to their credit, a lot of that is true, right? Somewhere in the middle, I should find a bit more peace. Somewhere in the middle, I should be able to enjoy the journey and still be aware of my surroundings. But for now, I'm still searching for that middle ground. Okay. Like I said, today's topic, transcending control. And we've got three chapters. Chapter one, there's a cult around every corner. Chapter two, taking a bite out of the cults. And chapter three, living differently. Number one, there's a cult around every corner. So what do you think about when you hear the word cult? If you're like me, your mind goes straight to some highly visible ones that we've seen in the past, right? Ones that probably made national news headlines. So let's talk through three of them. First, you have the Branch Davidians of Waco, Texas. This is actually an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the church I was raised in, interestingly enough, so there's that. But the Branch Davidians were led by uh, the following people that were known as prophets. So there was a Victor Hutef. He was kind of the original prophet, and he began this movement back in 1935. When he died, his wife Florence took over. And a member of that sect at the time, Benjamin Rodin, basically joined her and helped take them through the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Uh, but when Benjamin died, his wife Lois took over as the prophet. And then in the 80s, a man named Vernon Howell came to the compound, if you will, or joined their group to study under Lois. He quickly rose to power and split the group, taking his followers in a whole different direction. When Lois died, Vernon returned to the original compound, now led by Lois's son, George, and basically took it over by force, reuniting the two groups of people and assuming control as the official prophet. Now, at some point, Vernon changed his name to David Koresh, which is the name that we all know him by. Koresh led the group into a standoff with federal agents in 1983, a standoff that lasted for 51 days. And unfortunately, the end result of this standoff was a deadly fire which killed many of the Branch Davidians inside the compound, including many of the children. Next, we have Jim Jones and the People's Temple. So the People's Temple was started by Jim Jones in Indianapolis, Indiana, a religious movement that combined Christianity with a kind of a sense of communism and socialism, really started between the 50s and the 70s, um, somewhere in there. And the group had a headquarters located in San Francisco as well. It had a strong focus on racial equality and was tied to many left-wing political figures at the time. Uh, the group moved around. They kept new 
outposts in the U.S. They kind of created new new areas around the country. But in 1974, the group leased some land in Africa, in Guyana, in a town called Jamestown. And this kind of became their socialist outpost, right? It was a little escape from the pain and the suffering that they were feeling in the U.S. They were, they were being highly scrutinized because of their beliefs and, and the way they were living. So this was kind of a, a home away from home for the People's Temple. Um, I, I think in 1977, they had around 50 people there. Uh, but by 1978, it had gone up to over 900 people as more and more people left the U.S. in search of this peaceful hideout in Guyana. Now, the end of this group came in a much different way. So the group was being investigated by a congressman named Leo Ryan, uh, who was concerned after hearing allegations about abuse that was going on within the group. So the congressman and a few of his uh, his inner circle flew to the compound in Guyana. They did an investigation and they asked if anybody was, you know, feeling like they couldn't leave. And if they did, then they could, you know, come with them back to the U.S. And a number of the people in the group actually did want to leave. And so, um, so the congressman and his, and his group took those people and they headed back to their plane. However, as they were preparing to leave, security guards from the People's Temple showed up and opened fire and they killed most of the group as they tried to leave the country. Now, this was like throwing gasoline on an already roaring fire. And Jim Jones understood this. He knew that what he had just done has sealed, had sealed his fate. So he enacted a plan that would wipe out his entire group. He put cyanide poison in grape-flavored Kool-Aid, and then he had everyone in the group drink it. When they did, they died. If they didn't drink the Kool-Aid, they were shot. Altogether, 918 people died in the compound, 276 of which were children. Now, here's the last one. Uh, not quite as well known, but at the same time, still an interesting um, conversation. So, the Heaven's Gate cult. This was a religious movement started back in 1974 by Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite. Um, they were known within their little group as T and Doe respectively, or Thai and Doe. I'm not sure which way they pronounced it. But they believed that they were the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelation. So they gathered a group of a couple hundred people, and once they had this core group, they just stopped recruiting, and they, they chose to live separate from society in a setting similar to the life you would live, I guess, in a monastery. The beliefs were a mixture of Christianity, millenarianism, uh, new Age, and what's called ufology, or the belief in the existence of extraterrestrial life. The group believed that they would ascend at some point into a higher level of existence, right? A level above the human existence that we were all experiencing. When Nettles, or Ty, um, died of cancer in 1985, the group completely changed their belief system. Originally, they assumed that they would reach the next level of consciousness by being removed from Earth on a UFO. However, when Ty died, they changed that belief and they began teaching that they would only ascend at the time of their death. The body was merely a container and that in order to ascend, the body had to die. So based on this belief, 39 members of the group participated in what's called a mass suicide um, in San Diego on March 26, 1997. Uh, they chose this day because that was the day that the Hale-Bopp Comet 
would be in close proximity to the earth, and they felt like it was a sign for them of their ascension. The day of the mass suicide, their website was updated, and it read, Hale Bop brings closure to heaven's gate. Our 22 years of classroom here on earth is finally coming to conclusion. Graduation from the human evolutionary level. We are happily prepared to leave this world and go with Ty's crew. And just like that, another cult came to an end. Another story. Boom. Done. Sound familiar? These are just three of the cults that I can remember hearing about, in part because I talked about them with my parents at the time, um, but also because they were just covered in the news. Like, you, you couldn't help but not hear it if you watched the news at that time. I've watched documentaries on the Jonestown event, and I believe the 51-day Branch Davidian standoff was literally live-streamed on some channels at the time. Uh, I think they were hoping that they would be there to capture the moment when David Koresh, you know, was let out in handcuffs and, you know, all of the people inside were freed from their uh, cult-like surroundings or whatever. But unfortunately, I don't think anybody was prepared for the way that that all turned out, the way things ended. Heaven's Gate wasn't quite as big in terms of the impact on the news coverage, but it still struck a chord right? How were 39 people so led astray that they all agreed to give up their lives, each one willing to commit suicide because their leader told them it was what they needed to do? Now, at the end of the day, if we're going to talk about cults, we should probably know what we're talking about. According to dictionary.com, a cult is a particular system of religious worship, especially with reference to its rites and ceremonies. An instance of great veneration of a person, ideal, or thing, especially as manifested by a body of admirers. A group or sect bound together by veneration of the same thing, person, ideal, etc. A religion or sect considered to be false, unorthodox, or extremist, with members often living outside of conventional society, under the direction of a charismatic leader. Or in the world of sociology, a group having a sacred ideology and a set of rites centering around their sacred symbols. So, as you can see, the term cult is typically tied to religious or spiritual behavior. However, we also use it to describe obsessive or compulsive behavior in other areas of our culture, right? For example, the the people who spend all their time in the gym doing CrossFit, right? These people are often referred to as being in a fitness cult. And then there are the tree-hugging environmentalists from the Pacific Northwest, right? This group has often been described as displaying cult-like behaviors. But again, most of the time, a cult has a religious bent to it. Now, according to verywellminded.com, here are 10 things that help us identify a cult. First, absolute authoritarianism without accountability. Number two, Zero tolerance for criticism or questions. Three, lack of meaningful financial disclosure regarding their budget. Four, unreasonable fears about the outside world that often involve evil conspiracies and persecution. Five, a belief that former followers are always wrong for leaving and that there is never a legitimate reason for anyone else to leave. Six is abuse of its members. 
Seven is records, books, articles, or programs documenting the abuses of the leader or the group. Eight, followers feeling like they're never able to be good enough. Nine, a belief that the leader is right at all times. And 10, a belief that the leader is the exclusive means of knowing truth or giving validation. So again, you could have all 10 of these in a group that has no religious affiliation at all, but typically there is. Number two, taking a bite out of cults. Now, for the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on the typical cult, right? The religious type, uh, where there's a dominant leader, often viewed as a prophet or leader, uh, someone who is somehow more knowledgeable than everybody else, someone who's often called the chosen one, um, possibly even viewed as God on earth on some level, right? Or at least sanctioned by God to lead and to direct. Uh, I watched two TV miniseries um, a while ago on the Fundamental Latter-day Saints, or FLDS. And both of these miniseries showed the way that these groups operate and how they literally fit the criteria of a cult down to the letter. Um, One was the Netflix series, Keep Sweet, Pray, and Obey. Uh, It was the real-life story of the group that followed Warren Jeffs. Uh, And the other one was an FX original series called Under the Banner of Heaven, starring Andrew Garfield. Uh, This was a series, a little more dramatic uh, representation of a series that was based on a real-life murder, um, a girl named Brenda Wright Lafferty and her 15-month-old daughter Erica uh, were murdered in 1984. And uh, they found, you know, obviously that it led back to this um, FLDS family Um, and some of their interesting beliefs. So I watched both of these. Both are very difficult to watch, you know, but both of them do an amazing job kind of visualizing what it looks like to be part of a cult and how it operates. So ultimately, a cult is born when a person gains a high level of authoritarian control over a group of people. Now, this is something that Stephen Hassan uh, has spent his entire life researching, His work culminated in this thing called the bite model of authoritarian control. Now, his his work was highly influenced by other researchers who came before him, people like Robert Lifton, Margaret Singer, Edgar Schein, uh, Louis West, people who had spent time studying the dynamics of the brainwashing that occurred in Maoist China. Um, but he also looked at people like Leon Festinger and the, uh, the cognitive dissonance theory. But his findings suggest that authoritarian control comes in four different spheres of influence. And he refers to these four spheres as BITE, or B-I-T-E. So there's behavior control, information control, thought control, and emotional control. Now, there are a lot of items under each of these. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through them as fast as possible, uh, just so you get a feel for what he he means by these uh, spheres of influence. It's a bit long, but stick with me, and then we'll unpack everything at the end. So behavior control, regulating an individual's physical reality, dictating where, when, how, and with whom the member lives and associates, how, when, and whom the member has sex with, controlling types of clothing and hairstyles, regulating diet, food, drink, hunger, and or fasting, manipulation and deprivation of sleep, financial exploitation, 
restricted leisure, entertainment, or vacation time. Uh, major time spent with the group being indoctrinated into rituals and or self-indoctrination using the internet. Uh, permission required for major decisions. Rewards and punishments used to modify behavior, both positive and negative. Uh, discouraging individualism and encouraging groupthink. Imposing rigid rules and regulations. Punishing disobedience by beating, torture, burning, cutting, rape, and or tattooing or branding. Threatening harm to family and friends. Um, forcing individuals to rape or be raped. Encouraging people to engage in corporal punishment. Um, instilling dependency and obedience, kidnapping, beating, torture, rape, separation of families, imprisonment, and murder. There you go. All behavioral um, influences or impacts on a person. Next, information control. Deception, either deliberately withholding information or distorting the information to make it more interesting or more acceptable. Systematically lying to the cult member. Number two, minimizing or discouraging access to non-cult information. So basically tying things down, locking down the internet, only allowing people to watch or read certain things. Number three, compartmentalizing information into outsider versus insider doctrines. So ensuring that information is not freely accessible, controlling that information, and allowing only the leadership to determine what the cult members need to know when and where. Number four, encouraging spying on other members. Uh, number five, extensive use of cult-generated information like propaganda. And number six, using unethical uh, means to force confession. So forcing people to give them information about previous sinful behavior or um, basically tearing down social boundaries and personal boundaries, right? Withholding forgiveness or absolution, uh, manipulating memory or possible false memories, things like that. Next, thought control. Number one, requiring members to internalize the group's doctrine as truth. Number two, changing a person's identity or even their name. Um, use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge. Um, encouraging only good and proper thoughts hypnotic techniques in order to alter mental states. Uh, memories are manipulated and oftentimes false memories are created. Uh, teaching thought-stopping techniques, which shut down reality by testing or by uh, forcing a person to deny rational um, emotions or rational things that they're perceiving in their environment. Chanting, meditating, <clears throat> praying, speaking in tongues, singing or humming, things like that. Um, number eight, rejection of rational analysis or critical thinking. Number nine, forbidding critical questions about leaders, doctrines, or policies. Number 10, labeling alternative belief systems as illegitimate or evil. And finally, instilling a new map of reality. And finally, we have emotional control. First, manipulate and narrow the range of feelings. Uh, teach emotion-stopping techniques. Number three, make the person feel like problems are always their own fault. Number four, promote feelings of guilt or unworthiness. Number five, instill fear. <laughs> Number six, um, extremes of emotional highs and lows. So love bomb somebody one moment and the next minute tell them they're a horrible, um, worthless person. Number seven, ritualistic and sometimes public confessions of sin. And finally, phobia indoctrination. So this is basically um, 
creating irrational fear about leaving the group, right? The, there'll be no happiness or there'll be no fulfillment outside of the group or terrible consequences will happen if you leave. Shunning those who do leave, um, showing that there's never a legitimate reason to leave, and then threatening either the harm of that person or their family members if you would, if you would leave the group. And that's it. But that was a lot, right? Like I said, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Um, but it's important to understand that these lists aren't meant to be all-inclusive. In other words, they're not meant to dictate every single thing that must be seen in a cult in order for it to be considered a cult, right? They're, they're very long lists because uh, Mr. Hassan is including everything, all of the criteria. He wanted to make sure that the bite model included all of the things you might potentially see in a cult scenario where the leader is exerting author authoritarian control over a group of people. So yes, it sounds like a crazy list, right? And it might give you a false sense of security at first if you think, well, that's extreme. The group I'm part of isn't that bad. And while that might be true, it doesn't mean that your group is not still uh, falling into cult-like behavior because you don't have to have all of those criteria in each bucket in order to be considered a cult or for your leader to be considered a person exercising high levels of authoritarian control over you. There are extreme cults, and then there are your run-of-the-mill cults, right? But at the end of the day, it's still a cult, and we need to understand how they operate so that we don't get caught. Number three, living differently. So this is probably where I should inject my story into the mix. At the beginning, I alluded to the fact that I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and that the Branch Davidians were an offshoot of that church. In fact, legend has it that David Koresh attended the same SDA college that I did. Now, I can't confirm that, but within the SDA denomination, there's this interesting saying, all roads run through Andrews University, which is one of the SDA colleges. So I wouldn't be surprised that if at some point he was either enrolled there or at least spent some time there. But that isn't the point. The point is that I was raised with the same upbringing as David Koresh. If he grew up hearing the traditional teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church the way I did, we're one and the same. Now, at some point, we obviously took very different routes, right? We made very different life choices. And the direction he headed led him straight into a cult, one that he eventually became the leader of. But the funny thing is this. This wasn't uncommon. In fact, when I lived in Wyoming, uh, there was a family who started attending our little SDA church. They had some interesting beliefs, and it, at one point, they left to follow a more strict and removed lifestyle. Over time, we heard stories, right, that they had found property and that other people had joined them on this property to live out this more holy lifestyle as a group. Now, that's all I can remember about them, but when I think about it now, I realized this could potentially be the birth of a cult. Now, it may not be an extreme example, like it, it may be totally safe for the participants there, but if you were to use the bite model as a checklist, there's a good chance that this group would be labeled a cult. Okay, back to me and David Koresh. Why the difference? What sent him in one direction and kept me where I was at? Well, next week, I might answer that in a little bit more detail because we're gonna talk about brainwashing and there had to be some of that going on in the mix somewhere, right? But the funny thing is, society viewed both of us as being in a cult. Did you know that? 
Back when the Seventh-day Adventist church was viewed as a cult, it was mainly because the church placed a lot of weight on the writings and teachings of one individual, a woman named Ellen White. At the same time that the SDA church was growing into a major denomination, so was another denomination, the Mormon church, with their own prophet, Joseph Smith. The similarities were there, so I believe that the culture just clumped both of them together as cults. Then in 1965, along comes Walter Ralston Martin, uh, an American minister who wrote a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. It's a book that later went on to become one of the definitive works on cults and how you identify them as a cult. And strangely enough, in his book, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was not given a full chapter. Instead, they were placed in the back in Appendix B, which was called The Puzzle of the Seventh-day Adventists, or The Puzzle of Seventh-day Adventism. Because at the time, he was confused, right? On the one hand, society placed the church in the category of a cult. But in his research, he found that they didn't necessarily fit the complete mold of a cult. So with these puzzling findings, he simply explained what he found and left it at that. Which is funny, especially to me, because that's exactly the way I felt when I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, right? I felt different. I felt like I was part of something that others viewed as abnormal. You worship on Saturday, and you believe in this thing called the 24-hour Sabbath, right? There's a health message, pretty legalistic beliefs about meat, caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and the church believes very strongly in having hospitals and schools. And because of these things, you typically get grouped into communities where there's a church or a school for your kids or employment through the hospitals. And that's just the upbringing that we had. Uh, for a while, I lived in Hinsdale, Illinois, and that was definitely the case there. There was Hinsdale Hospital, Hinsdale Seventh-day Adventist Church, Hinsdale Academy, basically the trifecta right? If you lived in that community, you had employment, you could go to church, and you could send your kids to school all in the same little community. But that's nothing compared to the SDA community that formed in Southwest Michigan in a town called Berrien Springs. You have Andrews University, Andrews Academy, Pioneer Memorial Church, Village Church, All Nations Church, Apple Valley Grocery Store, which has every possible health food you can imagine, and fake, fake meat meat substitutes, all of those types of things. And even the McDonald's in town offered a veggie burger years before it was a thing. We often called Berrien Springs Veggieville, and it just kind of stuck, right? Because it was a community that catered to the SDA church or the SDA community. Now, all that to say, I don't believe the SDA church is a cult. Unique and very interesting take on the Bible for sure, but as a denomination not a cult. And over time, it's been interesting to watch other denominations form similar beliefs to what the Seventh-day Adventists believe. Did you know that there's a group called the Seventh-day Baptists? There are Sabbatarian Pentecostals and Sabbatarian British Israelites, all sorts of groups of people that seem to have some overlap with the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, these denominations may not be your cup of tea, but they are legit denominations with hundreds of thousands of followers, people who are free to come and go, people who would not consider themselves as being part of a cult. So you might be asking, well, Daryl, you grew up Seventh-day Adventist, and you don't believe they're a cult, so 
why aren't you still Seventh-day Adventist? And why all this talk about deconstruction on the podcast? Aren't you still a Seventh-day Adventist? Great question. The simple answer is that I fell away from the Seventh-day Adventist church for quite a while. And when I returned to church, or religion, I guess, at the time, um, I connected with the megachurch movement, right? I was, I was pulled in because of the lights, the worship, the inspiring messages, and the focus on loving others, right? It was so different from the legalistic approach of my upbringing. As I got more and more involved, I started to volunteer. Uh, eventually, I got a job working in the megachurch world. And for quite a few years, I felt like I had it made. Life was good, right? I was getting paid to do what I loved. And it was ministry, right? There was a purpose behind what I was doing. But eventually things changed. And over time, I began to see behind the curtain, the belly of the beast, the dark side of the movement. How it was run like a business with business goals more so than people goals. How there was often a narcissistic leader at the top. How people often cowered at their feet and did whatever they asked. How money and perks just flowed uphill to a few people at the top while those at the bottom worked for minimum wage or less because... After all, it's a calling. It's not a job, right? You get to be in ministry. This is such a privilege. At some point in there, I listened to The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast that helped me make sense of all of this. Now, it was an extreme example, but a very good one, right? I could see the same behavior, the same goals, the same rhetoric at most of the churches I had worked for. And I wanted to throw up in my mouth on some level. Right? I saw the similarities, but worse than that, I saw how I played a role in the machine. Right, I was just a cog in that machine. Without questioning, without pushing back, I was on the bus that was running over other people. And as long as I didn't rock the bus, I got to stay on it. And this was really the straw that broke the camel's back for me and probably led to my affair with deconstruction. Right, I found myself in no man's land. I wanted nothing to do with the large, culturally relevant churches anymore. But at the same time, I didn't feel that strong connection back to the Seventh-day Adventist church that I was raised in. So that's where I'm at, right? That's where I find myself. As I've said before, I'm not deconstructing my faith. I'm deconstructing religion. I've never felt more sure that God exists, and I still believe that Jesus is who he claims to be. But aside from that, I'm out of answers, right? I, I question the Bible. I no longer believe that it's inerrant, right? That there are no mistakes and no errors found in it. But at the same time, I believe there is a huge difference between the Bible and the Harry Potter series, right? If I'm going to believe in God, the Bible has to be part of the package. I just have to figure out the role that it plays into my belief system. And right now, the pieces that I'm holding on to are the pieces about Jesus, right? How he lived, how he treated others, and what he taught in terms of living life to the fullest. Aside from that, I'm just open, open to learn new things every day. It's a really strange place to be, right? Almost like reverting to a child, the way that a child experiences the world for the first time, free from the, the burden of knowledge, right? Um, it's as if I'm free from the guardrails that have been imposed on me for the last 40 plus years. I called this chapter living differently because that's my reality, I'm living differently from the way I was raised, and I'm living differently from the way that I thought I was supposed to live back in my 30s and 40s. Now, that doesn't mean that I've thrown out 
all of the morals and values that I learned along the way. It just means that I'm looking for meaning within those morals and values, right? I'm, I'm looking for the path Jesus called us to be on and not the multiple paths that the modern church is running down right now. So it's all new for me and for my family. I mean, if I'm honest, Tammy is on her own journey. The kids have to deal with the fact that we raised them in church and now we really aren't as involved, right? It's a different day. It's a different world out there right now, but we're making it. And I'm not pessimistic about the future. So let's land the plane. This week, ask yourself these questions. First, have you been part of an actual or an identified cult? If so, how did you get out? Or are you trying to get out? There are resources listed in the show notes below um, if that's something that you're looking for. Number two, when you listen to the bite model, right, and all of the things that make up authoritarian control, can you see those things at work in your religion or even in a group that you're a part of? And finally, are you at a point where you want to live differently? If so, what does that even mean, right? What steps could you take to move away from authoritarian control and into a more inclusive community that values you and your contribution to the world? I think that should about wrap things up. Like I said at the top, uh, the episode next week is loosely connected to this one. Interestingly enough, the first three episodes of this season are going to all be kind of linked together. But after that, all bets are off. New topics, uh, additional content from Tammy and I on our fostering journey. Uh, the sky's the limit. But again, thanks for joining me as we take this journey together. I hope you are well, and I hope that you are living your best life. As always, have a great week and keep transcending human. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Transcend Human podcast. If you're interested in the show notes for this episode, head on over to transcendhuman.com forward slash podcast and navigate to the episode you're looking for. On the website, you'll also find blog posts, podcast series, and other helpful resources to help you navigate the Transcend Human ecosystem. You'll also find links to our social media channels, and as always, if you have questions, feel free to contact us at info at transcendhuman.com. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you back here on Monday morning.